hearted toward us, even at our worst. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you're just joining us, welcome. We are currently working through a series we are calling Together. And it's a series a little bit different than we normally preach. It's organized around our membership covenant into about nine different parts, each with their own scripture attached to it. And the purpose of teaching through such a thing is because we think it's important to teach what it means to be part of a local church, especially in the times that we are in. Um, I think it's best described, or at least partially best described, that we live in a very me-centered world. And as a result, the elders believe that it's extremely important to remind us all that we actually have a very we-centered faith, a me-centered world and a we-centered faith. We-centered faith in a me-centered world. You know what I mean. But God, basically, He doesn't just save a person. Salvation has become very individualistic. He saves a people. The church was never an addendum on God's redemptive plan. The church was actually central to His plan. But Living in an individualistic culture, we end up viewing the church very differently. I was reminded as I read uh, recently in a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, uh, author Randolph Richards says it this way, if we're not careful, our individualistic assumptions about church can lead us to think of the church as something like a health club. We're members because we believe in the mission statement and want to be part of the action. As long as the church provides the services I want, I'll stick around. But when I no longer approve of the vision or am no longer being fed, I'm out the door. This is not biblical Christianity. Scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of the church. We become a part of the family of God with all the responsibilities and expectations that the word connotes in the non-Western world. It's said that way because um, we live in a Western world and have certain ideas of how church or what church is. The church you've heard, I'm sure, is more than a building, yes. It is more than just an institution. It's more than a club, and it's more than just some weekly event. The Bible actually describes the church most often as a family, But we don't often view church or maybe understand what is meant by family. As a former English teacher, I know that the meaning of words change as they've been used over history in our culture and through experience. Historically, Eastern and Western kind of cultures understand ideas like family very differently. Generally speaking, Eastern cultures from which the Bible originates, they understand family as, um, or at least culture and life, as more collectivist relationally. And what I mean by that is that they see individuals as mainly part of a group, and the needs of that group are often more important than the individual. Now, of course, this emphasis has its benefits and also has its own challenges, But perhaps it goes without saying that the Western culture generally favors individuality over community as a point of emphasis. So for better or worse, our culture 
emphasizes very strongly our free independence over our mutual dependence. It emphasizes our personal preferences over our shared unity. It emphasizes typically our personal rights over our communal responsibilities. And this is just a place where it's emphasized and therefore shapes what we think and how we feel, often without even knowing it. Because as a result of this emphasis, we struggle, I think, to view the church as the family that the Bible describes it to be. We don't understand that. It almost feels countercultural, and because we grew up in this cultural, it feels counterintuitive, which is why a series like this is really important to go, what exactly is the church and what does it mean to be a part of it? The family of God is the most dominant image in the Bible when speaking of the people of God. God uses all kinds of family language to describe not just our relationship to Him, but actually our relationship to one another. And put together, you're like, wow, this is actually a pretty consistent description. The Bible teaches that we are adopted by the Heavenly Father. Not just by God, by the Heavenly Father, and we are brought into His family to dwell with other brothers and sisters. He goes further to say we are children. We are described as the children of God quite often. We are encouraged to rejoice in our identity as sons and daughters. The Bible says that when the church comes together, we are no longer strangers and aliens. We have become in Christ fellow citizens with the saints co-heirs with the Son, and more than that, members of the household of God. All that is family language, packed full of meaning, some good, some bad. But the church is a family. And just as family is the dominant image used to characterize the church, so love is the dominant description of for the family that is in the Bible. But just like family, the word love is full of meaning, shaped by our culture, shaped by our experience, some good, some bad. Love has all kinds of different definitions depending on who you ask. It can mean everything from just sentimentality to sexual intimacy. It can mean everything from Uh, an emotional connection that's even just infatuation to a deep level soul attachment. Love can mean anything from like this uncontrolled feeling and state that you can fall in and out of, or it can also mean a lifelong commitment that requires an active choice through hardship often. We have a whole holiday seemingly devoted to love, which happens in a week or so, And even that is all kinds of meaning attached to it, good and bad. So it's important for us to go into the Bible and go, okay, what does this actually mean for us? So when we began the series, we described what it meant to have a shared commitment. And again, what does commitment mean? So we went into the Bible and said, well, biblically speaking, we're talking about a covenant, which is a unique kind of commitment. And so as the weeks go on from there, we're like, okay, what are the different parts of this commitment that we've made? And one part was we've made a shared confession. We've said there are certain truths that we are going to 
be uniform on, even though there's lots of things that, that we may disagree about. These are the ones that we say, no, these are where we draw the lines. And then we have this idea that Mike spoke last week of unity, something we work for, something we pray for, something that's important for our witness. This week, and in addition to next week, we're going to talk about a shared commitment to love. What does it mean to have a shared commitment to love? Our covenant reads this way. If you are a member, you've signed a covenant that says this. You recite this at our members meeting, and this is the covenant that we've made. And one aspect is we commit to walk together in brotherly love as is appropriate for the members of a Christian church. Now that's packed full of meaning. And my hope is to go, all right, let's talk about what it means to love one another. How do we define that? That's just good intentions? Does that mean anything beyond thoughts, words? What is it? And which leads us to John 13. I think John 13 provides us a very explicit and clear example of what Jesus meant for the kind of love he expected from the church. I'm going to read John 13, beginning in verse 1, and here's what it says. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Powerful, powerful, important chapter in the Bible that we should use often and review often to understand what it means to love. So let me give you some context. Have you ever considered, and maybe you haven't, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you be thinking about? What would you be doing? I know it's kind of a morbid question, but I think it's a good one. Where would your mind naturally go? What would you want to do? 13 years ago, maybe to the day, I'm not sure, but at least to the month, my Jewish grandmother died. Not my Messianic Jewish grandmother, my Jewish grandmother. And so the funeral was very Jewish. I'd never been to one. There were certain traditions that I was not familiar with. One of them was they uh, chose a coffin that looks lower like a crate that you put a leg lamp in or something like really rustic and just basic. 
And so that is like you would expect something more ornate, but the tradition was they wanted the cheapest coffin that would deteriorate the fastest so that the body would return to the dust the quickest. Like, oh, that's fascinating. There were some other things that were interesting, but what I found out at the funeral, as my mom told me, that my grandmother had written a note on the night that she died. It was actually a list of things to do for the next day. And on that list was simply this. Clean teeth, have nails done, and buy wine. You can see where her mind might have been. I don't know if she actually knew she was going to die, obviously. But it's always made me consider, what would be on my list? What would I be thinking about? What would I do? How would I spend my last hours? Well, the Gospel of John gives us an amazing picture, a very vivid picture of Jesus' final days on earth. In fact, John devotes four chapters to the final hours of Jesus' life, more than any other gospel. He spends his final hours with his closest friends in a room. He spends his final hours feasting with them and worshiping with them, singing with them, praying with them, and here we see loving them in a very particular way. The setting for this scene, if you're not familiar with the Passover, it's a celebration annually that the Jews would observe, and it was began on a Thursday night, would go late into the evening, and would extend for several days. Now, the Passover was celebrated for hundreds of years. It would have been celebrated by these disciples every single night, I'm sorry, every single year of their life, Jesus as well. Um, it had been instituted at the Exodus from Egypt. So when the Hebrew people were redeemed out of slavery, this ceremony was instituted prior to that final moment where they actually were freed from Egypt. And it really was partially memorializing the ten plagues that came as a result of God's wrath and his method, if you will, of freeing his people. The tenth plague was the most devastating, and that was the plague that basically promised to kill the firstborn child or firstborn animal of every family. And the only way to protect yourself from that was to sacrifice a lamb, a particular kind of lamb, and to take the blood and to wipe it over your door. And then when death came, they would pass over those homes who were covered by the blood, and they would be saved. The others would die. Now, during this during his ministry, John the Baptist actually identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this whole picture of Passover is truly picturing the cross and the atonement. And Jesus knows this. He knows that the next day he is going to be led to the slaughter like a lamb and sacrificed for the sins of many and yet, despite knowing that, he spent his final hours serving, loving his bride, caring for his blood-bought family. The disciples won't understand what he is doing for many, many days. But in that moment, I can imagine what they're thinking. So try to get in the mind of these disciples. This is a celebration they have 
done their entire life every year. They're very familiar with it. They have just spent three years of their lives walking around the area of Judea and the regions outside of that with Jesus, watching him do amazing things. They have watched him give sight to the blind. They have watched him cause the lame to walk. They have watched him raise the dead. They have seen him feed thousands of people with a few loaves. He has gotten a tremendous amount of popularity. On this particular Passover, they entered Jerusalem just a couple days ago, and everyone was excited to see Jesus. Thousands of people praised Jesus. They laid out palm branches as he rode in on a donkey, and guess who was walking with him? The disciples. They had to feel pretty good. I imagine as they were reading and listening to the story of the Exodus, partially which would be read at Passover, they would think about Rome as they heard Egypt. How God crushed Egypt. How God redeemed from Egypt. How God's going to crush Rome and redeem from Rome because the king, the son of David, is here. We heard them praise him. So as they sat down, his closest friends, his leaders, it probably felt like they were sitting down at a state dinner. And they were with the president, the rightful king who was going to usurp the throne. And they had to feel pretty good about themselves. We know that prior to Passover, they had kind of indicated how they were thinking. They argued between themselves, who do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Hey, Jesus, who's going to be on your right and left hand? They were clearly thinking of themselves, thinking about what it was going to do to bless them and what it was going to do to, to be in charge with Jesus, so to speak. The one thing we know they're not thinking of is dirty feet. They all sat down at the tables and no one washed their feet. That was unusual. Perhaps because there is really no host for their dinner, so to speak. But whenever you entered someone's house, the host would ensure that your feet had been cleansed. Walking around the ancient Middle East, right? It's not the Pacific Northwest where we wear sandals and socks. They just had sandals, dirt everywhere. It was nasty. So when you walked into someone's house, very practically speaking, you would have your feet washed. Typically, this was the responsibility of the host would have a servant wash your feet. Wives sometimes wash the feet of their husbands. Children sometimes wash the feet of their parents. Normally, with servants washing the feet of their masters. But ultimately, this was lowly work. It was servants' work. In fact, it was forbidden for masters to demand their Jewish servants to do it. It could only be Gentiles. It was that low of work. So these disciples are hanging out, stinky feet in the air, relaxed around the table. No one's offering to wash anyone's feet. No volunteers, no servants. And who stands up? The guest of honor, Jesus. Jesus, the man who had been declared the coming king, the son of David, the Messiah. He rose from his seat. And we are told what Jesus is thinking, right? He knew his hour had come. That's on his mind. He knows he's going to die. And he loved them to the end. He 
and love them to the very end. This act of love is kind of lost on the non-believing world because it just looks like, oh, a teacher that's washing the feet of us. I mean, that's, that's very gracious. When you understand from our shared confession who Jesus actually is, he is the Son of God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The creator stands to wash the feet of his creation. He takes his garments off, which is the last vestiges of respectability and social acceptability. It's a very tangible picture of him getting humble, of taking the role of a servant. It's hard for us, I think, to comprehend this. Whoever you imagine to be great, maybe it's a celebrity, maybe it's a politician, maybe it's someone else, to walk into a moment with them and they take off their garments and get on their hands and feet and start washing your feet. This is a picture, if you will, of, of a king willingly divesting himself of all privilege, of all position, of all power, which had already happened in the incarnation, but all earthly position, power, and prominence he might have. He's laying down his glory in such a tangible way. It's a complete reversal of what should actually happen. You have the clean, sinless, the only clean, sinless master actually becoming dirty so that the dirty, sinless, ugly disciples can be clean. I don't think we understand the weight of this love. I know I don't. You read this, you know, oh, that's, that's nice. It's so much more than that. Can you imagine as he begins to work his way around the table, he's starting to wash the feet, what would you feel? It's like that moment where you're like, oh, I should have done that, right? Would you not just feel shame? Even a paralyzing shame because you're like, you don't want to admit that you know that probably isn't right and it just kind of keeps going. Peter says something interesting. Comes to Peter like, oh, you wash my feet? But you notice he didn't say in the next breath, let me wash yours. It's like he was volunteering to wash someone's feet and take his place. But he often, he, he felt something was off, knew something was off. But I have appreciated Peter. I, I appreciate because I feel like he, he says what we're all thinking. He's just very raw. I like his faith because it feels familiar and foolish like my own. But I find it interesting that when, when, when someone reaches to help you, in this case it's the Son of God. So even when God reaches to help you, how resistant we are to that. We have our excuses too. One of the most common ones is this. I'm not dirty. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty clean. You realize most people think they're clean. Like most of us are like, you know, junior high kids spiritually. I don't stink. Like, no, you stink. And someday you'll realize that. Sorry, junior high kids. Well, junior high boys. Okay, junior high boys. There you go. You can hate it. Well, I'm not that dirty. Like, no, you are. You haven't showered for seven days. Like, you're dirty. 
Spiritually, I'm not that dirty. Okay, here's another one, though, that some of us go to. I'm too dirty. I'm not, I, you don't know, like, one is like, you know, you know how good I am. The other is like, you don't know how bad I am. I'm not even worthy of, like, being clean. I think most of us, maybe I just say that because I feel like this is my tendency, that when someone offers to help or when the Lord offers to clean, we go, I'll do it myself. I got it. I'll take care of it. I, I can clean it. Don't worry. I'll fix myself. What I love is, and Jesus doesn't say this here. You have to read this, though, of what he tells Peter. He tells Peter several things. One, he's like, Peter, you're dirty. And Peter, you're worth it. We need to be told both those things. And he also tells Peter, you can't fix yourself. You can't do it. He extends love to these guys in a way that is otherworldly. And let us not forget that he washes the feet of men who are within hours all going to flee and abandon him. And he knows it. He knows it. Jesus loves whoever we really are, because he knows it, wherever we really are. And that's not just love that he extends to those who love him. It's love that he extends even to his enemies. The love that God possesses and shows us, like, we barely grasp. I barely grasp. Because it's a love that we're so unfamiliar with. So, the next thing is what is most challenging for us. Because Jesus does this thing, and you're like, ah, look at all the theology and that, blah, blah, blah. And then he's, he asks the disciples in verses 12 to 15, after he washed, he said, do you understand what I've done here? Do you get it? And the answer is, no, they don't. So that's why he keeps talking. And he says this, you call me teacher and Lord. Think about those words, right? You have all the truth, and you're my master. You call me king, you call me lord and master, and you're right, I am lord and master. And then he goes on, if your lord and master has washed your feet, then you'd wash one another's feet. For I've given you example that you should also should do just as I have done to you. What does it mean to love one another? Well, Jesus has given us an example. Let me start washing each other's feet. No, I don't think it's as instructive as it is supposed to be transformative if you know who Jesus is. Do you know that 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, the love of God controls us because we believe the gospel. We're controlled by the love of God. And you only become controlled by love when you are exposed and you truly understand the depth of love that God has for us. When you truly understand the depth of the gospel, what is really going on, how much and how far and how wide and how deep and how sacrificial and how foolishly and how graciously and how patiently God has loved you, 
you're changed. And so is how you love. One must come before the other. First John talks a lot about love. So John, who wrote the gospel we're reading, he also wrote these epistles, and he wrote more about love than anybody else. He wrote this in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, so if you don't want to be convicted, avoid 1 John. I'm serious. If you want to like, man, I wonder if, I wonder if I'm a Christian, read 1 John. He says a lot. And interestingly, a lot of it has to do with these relationships. He continues, anyone who doesn't, does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Okay, John, where are you leading me? Oh, it gets worse. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So he's like, you want to know what love is? Like, how do we define love? Jesus. That's where it starts. Not culture, not your family, not what someone else has taught. Like, what, what does Jesus show us? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, big word for wrath sponge, covering our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, there's the motivation, we also ought to love one another. It gets worse, or better. You keep going, I'm going to skip a few verses. If anyone says, I love God, if you're a member of this church, you have confessed to be a Christian. If you confess to be a Christian, you have declared that. I love God. Which is really secondary to, I know God loves me. I know God loves me. I love God. So if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and I know our inside's like, I don't hate my brother. Hate's such a strong word. Dislike. Disdain can't stand, like, why whatever word you want. And brother isn't like brother, it's brothers, sisters. If you say, I love God, but you can't stand your brother. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. You're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment, not the suggestion, not the hint. This is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those who know the love of God are committed to loving one another because they know God has loved them. And this is the kind of love that like everyone's looking for in the world. And you can look for it and maybe find glimpses of it in the world, but it has to be found in the church. Now, granted, it often is not, which is why we should preach about it more. Love has got to be in the church family. This is why we have a commitment, right? We put it in our covenant commitment 
to walk together in brotherly love as is appropriate for the members of a Christian church. Like, it doesn't make sense if we're Christians to not be loving like this. This is a command. Which if we go back to John 13, Jesus says something that should blow your mind. Again, using that commandment word again. So is it like, if you so feel like it, if the desire should spark in your heart, it's a command. Now, I hope desire is pushing it. But he says, this is a command I give you. To love one another just as I love you, you also are to love one another. Cool. But then he says, by this. Well, what's this? Your love for one another. Okay. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus explicitly states, you want to know if you're a Christian? You want to know how other people will know if you're a Christian? You love one another in a way that's meaningful. Like, well, what, what, is, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked, John 13, really quickly. You go, well, how did Jesus love? First, he loved actively. He didn't just love with sentimentality. He didn't just love with good intentions. He didn't just love because, you know, like feelings drove it. He loved actively. You realize that when he is trying to give them an example of love, he's like, okay, guys, gather around. I noticed you all have dirty feet. So I'm going to tell you a parable of a man who was a king, and he got up and walked. No, he, he doesn't tell them a story. He doesn't give them a lecture. He doesn't pull out the whiteboard. He loves them actively in a way that could be felt, in a way that could be touched, in a way that could be seen. I don't know how many people are like, yeah, I love you. Like, how do we know? It's not that words are meaningless, but at some point, they're empty if another actually touches real life. Jesus is active. He loves in a way that's like obvious because there's an impact. They've got clean feet. Second, when we are committing to love one another in brotherly love, we are committing to love one another sacrificially. And what does that mean? Well, let's just be honest. It means loving in a way that is humble and loving in a way that hurts. If, if it doesn't hurt, I'm not sure it's the love of Christ. If it doesn't cost you anything, I'm not sure it's love like Christ. It doesn't need to cost you your life. Might cost you your lifestyle. But we all approach relationships generally the same way. And that is this. What am I going to get from it? Why do marriages fail? Because they come into a relationship going, what am I going to get from this? As opposed to a disposition, what am I going to give? Imagine a husband and wife both committing to a relationship like, what am I giving to this? What am I committed to give to this? Without expectation of reciprocation. We don't sacrifice because we're afraid we're going to lose something, but we intend to lose something then it's easier. 
Third, we are to love impartially. This is the hard one. It ain't clicking. Love impartially. Okay, don't forget this. There are those people, though we don't say it out loud, who we think are too dirty. Too unlovable. Now, if you say I've loved God, you didn't think you were too dirty. But the way we approach others is often not in a gospel way. Let us never forget that Jesus washed the feet of Thomas, who denied him. I'm sorry, who doubted him. Peter, who denied him. And even Judas, who betrayed him. He washed the feet of a guy who he plainly states before he washes feet that Satan had already filled his heart. He washed the feet of a guy who was his enemy, a guy who was not a believer, a guy who pretended to be a brother. We are to love impartially. And that is hard because everyone has someone in our life, particularly a brother or sister in Christ, who's hard to love. I know there's someone right now in your mind like, that person hurt me. That person didn't love me. I would humbly suggest that that is the very person that Christ is asking you to wash their feet. Fourth, we are to love locally. I have found that There's nothing wrong with loving the sick and the sore, the poor and the needy, the widows and the orphans that are in our community. But I think all too often we immediately start searching for those in need far away to love and ignore the ones that are right in front of us. We make this commitment as a church so that we understand who are those who are closest to us. Jesus loved those who were closest to him well. I want you to think about this. He loved 12 guys well, to the end. We have 200-ish members in our church. You're like, how am I going to love 200 brothers and sisters? I have no idea. That sounds hard, but I do understand how you can love 12. And imagine if 200 members loved 12 members well. Pretty sure we had everyone covered. That's what we're talking about. Who is right in front of you? Who is closest to you? Those are the ones we are called to love. And specifically the local church, it's like, who are my neighbors? I don't know, it can be a lot of people. But who are my brother and sisters? Right here. That we can know for certain. Lastly, we are called to love willingly. And what that means is that it can't just be out of compulsion. It can't just be out of guilt. It can't be just out of your pastor browbeating you. Be loving, darn it. Right, as parents, you talk to your kids, come on, be loving. It, if it's only duty, if that's all it feels like is just duty, then I would suggest you may not fully understand the gospel. We love because he first loved us. We're able to love because he first loved us. We don't love because of what we think we're going to get from others. We love because of everything we have in Christ. And, and when you love like that, people are changed. 
When you love radically like that, when it's undeserved and you're loving really the most unlovable or the person that's just very different than you, they are changed. But I will tell you, that's not the primary goal. The, the result of sanctification is driven by the primary purpose of glorification. I'm loving because it makes much of God's love and people are blessed as a result. If you start with the blessing, you might actually be loving with the wrong motivations because you want to change them more than you want to proclaim the love of God. I hope that makes sense. In conclusion, quite simply, we have to put love in our covenant. Like, why do I have to put love in our covenant? Well, here's why. As churches grow and do lots of things, it is easy to get excited about the things that are not as important. There's a church that, again, the Apostle John, well, Jesus wrote a letter to through Revelation. So the book of Revelation starts with seven letters to churches. And one of those letters is a church to a church in Ephesus, and they've got everything right. This is a letter Jesus writes to him. He says, I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance of their suffering, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found, like, they are calling out false teachers. They are standing for right doctrine. They got everything right. He says, I know you are enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Like, wow, this church is like awesome. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you've had at first. Now I'll tell you. I don't know what that means. Scholars disagree about what, what, what's the love they're talking about here. Love for Christ. Love for one another. Here's all I know. There's an absence of love and a presence of a lot of other things. This church is not loving as they ought. Whether that's love of God or love one another or whether those go together. It reminds me of what Mike talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 13, which is always at weddings and it shouldn't be. It's a great love, like love is patient, love is kind. That's great. Genesis, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14, where 13's in here, that's all about the church. Particularly, it's about the gathering of the church. It's about the love that's in the church. And what actually Paul writes in that context is paraphrase this. You know, your church can have good preaching and sacrificial giving and sound doctrine and long prayers and generous mercy ministries and rich praise music, even persecution. You can have everything that you would expect from a spirit-filled church. You can have great attendance. You can have all kinds of baptisms. You can have huge community impact. You can be sending people out on mission trips and doing all kinds of work. But if you don't have love that hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things, you have nothing. Nothing. But we have all that stuff. Worthless without love. I pray the Restoration Road Church does not become a church that's got all these doctrinal and ministry things right, that has a huge absence of love for good old-fashioned love for one another that can be felt and seen and heard. 
Because that is what is most important, and that's why it's in our covenant commitment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you have shown us. It is only because you have shown us love that we are able to love, but even then we fail. Would you make the gospel awaken to us again? Would you help us to understand what it means to love beyond just sentimentality and good intentions? Would you empower us by your spirit to love one another the way that Christ has loved us? And when we fail in doing so, remind us that we are still loved and empower us to continue and do it again. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.